Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Alex Hoyer. Um, he took to the road, and or actually he took to the steamships. And this was a very high-profile uh, tussle at, at the time. This isn't often talked about. Essentially, there was already motion this happening. This wasn't so radical uh, of a thing to have happened. This Thursday marks the 159th anniversary of Missouri Emancipation Day. On January 11, 1865, delegates to a state convention led by radical Republicans passed the immediate emancipation of all enslaved people. This was about two years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and about 11 months before the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution that abolished slavery. Also happening this Thursday is an event at the Missouri History Museum to commemorate this anniversary. A little bit later, we'll talk with a board member of Father Dixon Cemetery, a historic black cemetery in South St. Louis County. But first, I'm joined by Cecily Hunter, public historian for the African American History Initiative at the Missouri Historical Society. Welcome. Thank you. So good to be here. I mentioned a few dates in the intro, but I want to go back uh, 40 years before the start of the Civil War to the Missouri Compromise of 1820. How did that compromise set up Missouri uh, and its complex history with slavery? Yeah, so essentially, um, Missouri as well as Maine were admitted. Uh, And so Missouri stands in as a slave state, right? And then you have Maine who comes in as a free state. So they were brought in simultaneously. Uh, So it's interesting because, you know, right alongside the river, right? Right alongside the Mississippi River, you have Illinois, which is seemingly considered to be a free state, but you have Missouri situated as this border state, and that complicates relations uh, within Missouri. And so you have simultaneously free and enslaved people sometimes working alongside one another. You have people who are literally on these steamboats traversing the river and and working alongside the levee near St. Louis. Um, And so life is very, very complex, right? It's not just necessarily, we can't think about it as like a Southern rural area, but this is, this is very much a complex place. Um, But it's also interesting because we have to think about William Will Brown's book. And he talks about how slavery here in St. Louis was just as, as harsh and detrimental as it was in the deepest, deepest of the South. So a very complex place to be in. Um, and yeah, it just it, it's really it's really awe opening and, and jaw dropping just to kind of think about what's going on in Missouri in St. Louis specifically at mm-hmm. that time. And throughout the country, slavery uh, was so complex uh, because above a certain line, slavery should not have been permitted in any new state. And then the Kansas Nebraska Act of 1854 kind of did away with that. But before we talk about more, I feel like the issue of slavery is so often sanitized uh, today where it becomes this historical topic and we don't really understand what it was like and what it was for people who were enslaved. What was it like for black people who were enslaved during this time? 
Yeah, so I can speak a little bit to to St. Louis. So life in St. Louis for an enslaved person, as I mentioned, they could work alongside free people. And a lot of times that was a really tense relationship. So you have a lot of people, uh, white folks at the time, who really wanted to do away with uh, free population. (laughs) You know, essentially, they were were like, hey, we need to to get the free people out of here because what's going to end up happening is they're going to taint the minds of those who are enslaved. Oftentimes, too, you would see which is a little bit different um, in some cases, but you would see enslaved people working alongside slaveholders. That was common. Um, so we don't necessarily here in St. Louis have the the large slave plantations as you would have in the Deep South, right? But it might have been smaller scale enslavement. But nevertheless, it, it was still harsh and it was still... Um, you know, dangerous sometimes to navigate the streets. Sometimes, you know, enslaved populations were free, but as long as they had, you know, paperwork with them, they were able to to navigate that. But that did not necessarily mean that they could not be captured and sent back south, right? Or sent or sent back into slavery in some other location. So life in, in St. Louis was very different, um, as I said, than, mm-hmm. than the Deep South. Yeah. So Missouri was a border state during the Civil War. And it remained in the Union. But what was going on in Missouri at the outset of the war in 1861? So essentially what happens is it. this is, I feel like this isn't often talked about a whole lot, mm-hmm. but it should be because essentially what happens is you have Major General John C. Fremont, who is, um, he's actually representing the Western Department and he's headquartered in St. Louis. So on August 30th of 1861, what transpires is he issues martial law. Right. And then uh, next, then he puts forth a proclamation and it's very controversial at the time. And so this this proclamation essentially says that enslaved people are seemingly free. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it also talks about how uh, people who were loyal to the Confederacy, their property can be stripped from them. Enslaved people, we can, you know, at that time they would have deemed enslaved people property. Um, And, you know, they would then be taken to on the union side and they can support the union in whatever form or fashion. So what transpires after that essentially is uh, Abraham Lincoln catches wind of this. From a, from a newspaper article. Yeah, catches news of this and is not happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he is not the only one that's not happy about this. You have people across the country who are like, what is going on in Missouri? This is mm-hmm. crazy. Fremont is out of line. Um, Kentucky, uh, in particular, is another uh, another state um, that that essentially they were very upset as well. And, and Lincoln got word that, you know, people were really not happy about this. And link, a couple of letters are exchanged between September 2nd and between, I believe it was November 2nd. That's when um, Lincoln essentially says we're going to actually have to remove Fremont from his role. And he actually, you know, strips that commanding, you know, um, the major general commanding office that he once possessed, he strips that from him. Mm-hmm. So it happens in some ways, you know, that we might not think of that as happening pretty quickly, but it, it essentially happens relatively quick, quickly for that time frame. And and again, uh, Fremont's emancipation was, uh, it was uh, January, uh, it was early in the war. It was August 1861. Uh, and Ab- Abraham Lincoln was... Um, known for for his timing and so he did things on his terms his his thought at the beginning of the war that it was one it was too soon and that it would upset people who uh, were kind of neutral in Missouri at at the time 
And he didn't feel like it was a martial law kind of action, that, that it had to be the federal government. Um, and this, this idea of, of timing, why wasn't it right? Uh, why wasn't it the right time for Lincoln? Yeah, so it wasn't the right time, um, from my understanding, simply because they really didn't want to muddy the waters. Tension was already high at the time. And you don't want the, the border states in particular uh, rattled by what's going on with this one particular state, because essentially it can send rippling effects across the, the border states and across the country. So essentially that was the problem is like, no, this is not the time for this. But it is interesting that he then, by 1861, January 1st, that's when the Emancipation Proclamation is put into force um, and it's issued. And so although at the time he was, he was, it was not, a, according to him, the right time for it, but essentially he had to roll that back by 1863 and it became the time for it. Right. And John C. Fremont at, at the time, I mean, he was one of the most popular Americans. He, he, had, he had been a war hero uh, and kind of a, a hero of westward expansion in, in the United States. And so this, this, was, a, this was a very high profile uh, tussle at, at the time. When before Fremont's emancipation was rescinded, had it had any material effect of of freeing people in in Missouri between the time that it was enacted f- to to the time that it was rescinded? Oh, that's a good question. That is an excellent question. So I know that there were other. Of course, there was the the Confiscation Act that transpired, right? And that would have mm-hmm. been like August August sixth of eighteen sixty one. So Congress actually passed that, and essentially all that meant was that you know enslaved people, or not necessarily enslaved people, but the territory uh, would be turned over. But Fremont went that step further. But from my understanding, there was a, a pretty big uptick in Missouri mm-hmm. of. Um, enslaved people coming from the South into the North. Uh, There were many who were actually, I think it was roughly around that time, maybe it even could have been around 1863, but folks who were trying to to go to Kansas because there were benefits associated with with enslaved people going to to, uh, Kansas and participating in the war. So for example, uh, they could receive money, they could receive clothing, they can receive rations and housing, and even more, in some cases more particular, the certificate of freedom for the soldiers and for their children and and for their mothers. Um, And so, so yeah, so there was certainly an uptick in in populations of black people. And so I can give you some numbers here. Sure. Yeah. So um, in Missouri, the population actually had decreased by 1863. So I'm just talking about all of Missouri uh, to 73,811, but it was 114,931 enslaved people by 1860. Uh, and so earlier, those numbers were on the higher end in Missouri, and then they tilt in seventy in um, eighteen sixty three. And like I said, it possibly could have been because of that that Kansas movement that was really drawing people out west. Mm-hmm. So in St. Louis, in particular, in nineteen in eighteen sixty, there was roughly about three thousand two hundred and ninety seven people living within the city limits. But by eighteen seventy, we see that that number escalates, and it's at 22,088 people were in the city. Mm -hmm. So there is a bit of an uptick on on that end as well. 
Um, so those are just a few figures that we can think about. And when we even talk about black people's involvement um, in the war effort, we can look to uh, their contributions. It was said, not, I'm not necessarily focused on St. Louis at this moment or even Missouri, but it was estimated there, that there was 180,000 black people who were present and active in the war. Um, and, and this is just in Missouri? No, this is not necessarily, this is just, you know, overall, okay. overall mm-hmm. figures that were represented. I know, because that's a huge number, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, you do have people in in the city who are very much fortifying when the war does transpire, fortifying the city that they're unloading supplies, they're, um, you know, joining the fight, of course, you know, you have many people, the 62nd colored and Infantry was one where there were many people who actually enlisted. And then you also have domestic work transpiring at the time because that's also needed, right? And so you have all of these different layers to represent the populations that are pooling into St. Louis, into Missouri, and even going further out as well. Well, we need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation about the emancipation of enslaved people in Missouri. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. I'm Alex Hoyer. I'm pleased to welcome another guest to the conversation, and that is Kathy Hart, a board member of Father Dixon Cemetery. That's a historic black cemetery in South St. Louis County in Crestwood. Kathy will also be participating in the event at the Missouri History Museum. Kathy, welcome to you. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Tell us about the namesake of the cemetery. Who was Father Moses Dixon? Moses Dixon was born free in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1824. And so this year, we're fortunate to be celebrating the 200th anniversary of his birth. It's a big one. Yeah, he was born free in Cincinnati. And um, as you know, Cincinnati is just on the other side of the Ohio River from Kentucky. And so uh, Cincinnati got a lot of people escaping enslavement in the South, and they saw a lot of it. And there were a lot of racial tensions in Cincinnati at the time of Moses Dixon's uh, childhood. Mm -hmm. And so he witnessed some very, very uh, troubling things in Cincinnati Uh, when he was about 16, uh, with his barber training, he had he had been trained as a barber. Um, he took to the road, and or actually he took to the steamships mm-hmm. and started uh, traversing the South as an itinerant barber. And you know how it is with barbers and hairdressers, right? You you hear a lot, and you witness a lot, and so. Um, he became aware firsthand, uh, not just what he had seen in Cincinnati, but he became aware firsthand of the atrocities and the inhumanity of slavery. And so um, he couldn't abide it. He just Mm -hmm. could not abide it. And he made the determination to do something about it. What what brought him to St. Louis? Um, What did bring him to St. Louis? Well, I know that he... 
He married a lady. Uh, his his wife was from Galena, oh, in the ah, Galena, Illinois, mm-hmm. and so I believe that St. Louis was, aside from Chicago, St. Louis was the booming place to be, mm-hmm. and. If you want to organize a group, if you want to be at the center of, of communications and what's happening, uh, you want to be in a place like St. Louis at that time. And so Moses Dixon uh, helps found a secret organization called mm-hmm. the Knights of Liberty. Right. Tell us about that group. Right. Well, it was comprised of people that he met during his travels in the South. And it was a super secret organization. It had to be um, because at that time, um, John Brown had Mm -hmm. unsuccessfully uh, made a move at Harper's Ferry and that had been put down, violently put down. And so uh, they knew it had to be a secret movement. Um, So he had representatives from each one of the southern states that had enslaved persons and they were recruiting, upon pain of death, uh, they were recruiting people to to hold to a commitment to work to free the slaves in an uprising, if need be, uh, without disclosing any of this. So as a testament to his charisma, uh, his ability to, to convey the seriousness of the situation, it was it was reputed that they had anywhere from 47,000 to 150,000 people. That's huge. Committed to this endeavor. Mm-hmm. And what's what's fascinating is that almost nobody knows about it. Mm-hmm. But the reason nobody knows about it is because they were sworn to secrecy and they kept that secret. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've often thought that a documentary could be made about this. It's it's so. It sounds ripe for that. Certainly. Exactly, exactly. But um, you know, so few details were leaked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that, that's part of what he did uh, in establishing the Knights of Liberty here in St. Louis. And and this group also helped enslaved people through the Underground Railroad as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cicely Hunter, when when we talk about the Knights of Liberty, how how common was it for uh, black people to be associated with an organization like this, or were there even other organizations that that, that they were involved with? To my knowledge, the, the Knights were one of the biggest ones that existed um, in, in the country, mm-hmm. from my knowledge base. And then in terms of how they helped people through the Underground Railroad, um, maybe just explain what the Underground Railroad is for, for, for people who, who might not remember their lessons during grade school. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, the Underground Railroad was essentially a network. And so um, a lot of times what would happen is uh, enslaved people would um, be in contact with folks that would help them to get to freedom. Um, you know, we can even talk about Mary Meacham, right? She's a, she's right, a prime example. Crossing, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. So we know from, from record, from the newspaper accounts where she was participating in the Underground Railroad. And some have even made the case that John Barry Meacham as well was doing the exact same thing. But we actually have record of her doing it and actually getting caught, right? So... Uh, Essentially, they would go to a safe space and, you know, plan out, chart out their their destination and they would meet up and they would go and pursue that freedom by any means necessary. And this was a big deal here in St. Louis, because as you pointed out uh, earlier in the hour, uh, 
the proximity of Illinois just across the river being a free state. Absolutely. Yeah. And even that, though, it, it's that even is a bit um, murky, too, because you do have um, slaveholders right in St. Louis and in other places along the border who are who are going to free territories as well. And they're still bringing their enslaved people. Right. And so you, you do have that representation taking place. Um, and, you know, that that was the case that Dred and Harriet Scott made. Right. And so and countless others. Right. Because we have these records of um, hundreds of people who were suing for their freedom on the basis that they were brought, you know, for whatever reason to a free territory or what have you, mm-hmm. um, whether it be Wisconsin Territory in Illinois or, or wherever. Right. So, yeah, it was it was certainly um, a method of, of emancipating oneself. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kathy, I understand that the Knights of Liberty gained uh, popularity and stature during the Civil War, too. Can, mm-hmm. you, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it was primarily prior to the Civil War that they were organized. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think about three or four years before the Civil War actually began, um, they were supposed to, in 1857, they were supposed to get started. They were going to gather in Atlanta, and it was going to be on at that point. But Moses Dixon was testing the winds of war that were present in the United States at that time. And he knew that things were going to get very serious between the Union and the secessionist states. And he thought it best to just kind of press pause Let's not jump into this yet. Let's see what the federal government is going to do about this situation, about freeing the slaves. And so they stepped back just to see. And sure enough, um, the war uh, began. And they, rather than uh, assemble themselves as as an army in themselves, they went to fight for the Union Army. And, and really, if, if the alternative approach had, had happened, that would have, uh, it seems, very much changed the course of history. We, we talked earlier about Abraham Lincoln being, being a master of, of timing. It sounds like Moses Dixon was also a master of timing, too. It would seem that way, yes. Um, I, I have in my, my notes here that, that the group's oath was, quote, I can die, but I cannot reveal the name of any member until the slaves are uh, free. That's correct. Um, Cicely, so January 11th, 1865 is when Missouri's emancipation was was passed. We kind of had that, that false start in 1861. Um, and this was two years after Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and again, just a, a few months before the end of the, the Civil War. What were those, those final months in Missouri like, particularly for enslaved people? Yeah, so they still were, as as I mentioned, were very, um, pro- you know, prevalent and prominent in, within the war framework and involved um, in any way, shape, or form. And as I mentioned, too, uh, we, we just have to think about the sheer number of people who are coming into St. Louis, Missouri, right, and who are pa- either passing through or actually stopping in Missouri. And so they're very much active and apart. And so in some cases, uh, some scholars have made the argument, well, what they did wasn't <laughs> wasn't so much of a, a radicalized uh, a way a move, right? Because 
in so many cases, like you already had populations of, of people who are already here in contraband camps and who are considered to be free, right? Because with those contraband camps, essentially, that was ushering them into a life of freedom um, as much as possible. So those it would provide shelter, it provide hospitals, it will reunite families, which is one of the major components of sla- slavery was essentially to break down the family, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so this move was... In some ways, it it orga- it needed to organically happen on the basis that a lot of these things were already in motion. Um, and the delegates, you know, I think in 1864, you know, the de- the radical delegates are are then um, by the white popular vote are actually voted in. And so, I think people knew what was already on the horizon. Is my my assessment. Right? And so Missouri wanted to get kind of ahead of like like they, they they knew what was happening and so they wanted to kind of preempt it in a way. I mean, you can make that argument. Um but yeah, I think I think what was already going on in the in the space in and of itself was evident. And and sometimes, you know, you you have policy ma- makers enacting certain things kind of after the fact. I'm not necessarily, I might be making a, a speculation here, um, but just saying that essentially there was already motion happening. And so this wasn't so radical uh, of a thing to have happened. Right. But but also necessary because Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation uh, a couple years before only applied to uh, states that were in rebellion against the Union. Um, and, and so it was certainly kind of a necessary step. And then, of course, we have the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that abolishes slavery. And we cannot think, oh, there is emancipation. Uh, it certainly doesn't equal equality. And, and right. I think a lot of people may assume that it, that it did. What was it like during Reconstruction for black people here. Yeah, so you have the Freedmen, Freedmen's Bureau who is actively trying to do what they can to provide resources to uh, to populations who are free. Um, but, you know, scholars debated whether it was effective, whether it wasn't effective. Um, you know, things get rolled back, things progress, but I think that's just the nature of of how things unfold, right? So you do have like a step, you, step, you have a step forward and then you sometimes take that step back. And I think in some cases scholars have made the case that reconstruction was supposed to be so productive for black populations, but some it didn't necessarily have the um the motion behind it that I think people really hoped it would. So so yeah, you, you definitely do have that. Yeah. Uh Kathy, I want to turn back to uh Father Dixon. What happened to him after the war? Well, after the war, uh, Moses Dixon returned to St. Louis, and he became the president of the Refugee Relief Board here. And as Cicely was saying, offering um, persons who were migrating either to St. Louis or to points beyond, maybe Kansas, maybe Chicago, um, to be able to offer them some source of comfort in their life. Um, you know, they escaped the South with nothing mm. most of the time. And so they needed food, they needed shelter, they needed clothing. Um, in our case, they needed a place to be buried. Uh, they had nothing. And so it was, it was the role of the Refugee Relief Board to provide as much as possible and to, to gather uh, supporters from the white community as well 
to be able to offer this to mm-hmm. these escaped persons. And and the cemetery that is named after him in, in Crestwood, that, that opened in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And I think the last uh, people were buried there in the 1970s, is Correct. that right? Correct. Uh, and we were talking before the mics went on about uh, the cemetery achieving uh, status in 2021 on the National Register of Historic Places. And we've covered on this show uh, just the bad conditions at a lot of uh, cemeteries where black folks are buried. How are things going at at the cemetery there? They're beautiful. The cemetery is beautiful. Um, We have have evolved from doing most of the physical work ourselves uh, to engaging a wonderful group of volunteers, uh, very dedicated volunteers who, who help us to maintain the property, and also a group of supporters who will help us to fund uh, professional lawn care uh, for the cemetery. So it's looking great, um, and and people are making it work. That is great to hear. And uh, in concluding, I want to just talk about the event that's happening this Thursday uh, from 5 to 8 at the Missouri History Museum. Uh, Cicely, what, what can we expect on Thursday evening? Yeah, so we, we hope that folks will come out and um, we'll have, of course, like our food and drink that can be for purchase uh, through Key Bistro. Uh, we'll also have some resource tables provided by many of the people who will be talking that evening. Um, we will have a pop-up conversation um, about the role of enslaved midwives during the antebellum period, and then we'll have our main stage event. And so essentially what happens is Greenwood, Father Dixon, St. Peter's Cemetery will share stories about black individuals who are living in the community in 1865. So lots going on, but it's going to be a great time. So you definitely want to join us. Thank you both for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. This episode was produced by Maya Norfleet. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.